All righty, all righty. We're about to send our youth out of here, but as they go, we're going to shout. So I want to hear them shout too, because I do love them. Are you ready? I love God and I love you. And get out of here then, you know. Gosh. If you're in the youth group and you'd like to head out to hang out with the other youth, go ahead. Pastor Jimmy is leading that. And if you'd like to stay here, you're more than welcome also to stay here. Welcome back to Philippians Because I Love You series. As we are walking through verse by verse every part of Philippians over, uh, it's going to take us about nine weeks here. And so we're about halfway through. We've been uh, all the way now through chapter one. And then we're finishing up chapter two today in our previous three weeks. Uh, We saw Paul's love for the church, his assumption that if you're alive today, that you're going to be fruitful uh, for God's kingdom, his desire for the church to stay together in unity, but that only happens as we follow the example of Christ, who is willing to look out not for his own interests, but for the interests of others, giving up, even at his own detriment, things uh, that were rightfully his so that, that we could be blessed. Uh, what what uh, God has done for us. And so today, what we're going to see in Philippians chapter 2 as we finish it is the practical outworking of what the first couple of uh, verses that we've been looking at uh, have been about. So we're in Philippians chapter 2 and 20. I'm using the NIV for this uh, expository preaching series. Um, so pull that up on your Bible app or if you have your Bible with you. And it's okay to use other versions. Just a note on versions. They're just translations from the Greek. And that's why they, they come out different because different, different groups are translating them. And so... Some are more word-to-word, some are more paraphrased, and so we're just using the NIV uh, this time. Sometimes we use the ESV, sometimes we use the NLT. Occasionally, if we want to be heretical, we use the message, you know, dun-dun-dun, trying to get crazy up in here. But uh, we're never that liberal, right, to get the message. We wouldn't want to go overboard. Oh, but sometimes. So it's really just a translation from the Greek. And so we're looking at Philippians chapter 2. That verse is going to pop right up here on your screen. Uh, Verse 12 we're going to start with today. Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. And so don't miss the connection, right? Last week we were talking about Jesus' obedience to God so that he gave, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but he releases it and he obeys. And so don't, don't miss the connection he's trying to make. Just like Jesus obeyed, so then we too ought to obey. Uh, that's a critical uh, connection here. Our part is active. God is acting, asking that we have obedience. But obedience to what? He's asking that we have obedience to the teaching of Jesus Christ and by extension the teaching of, of his apostles who Jesus put in charge of sharing his message with the world. Apostle Paul, the the 12 disciples, you may have heard of them. Yes, of course we have. And so that's what we're obligated to be obedient towards. And then he says, uh, work out your salvation. Now, literally, work out means, uh, I mean, uh, work out your salvation means to work down to an end point, an exact, definite conclusion. Now, we know the conclusion. See, the conclusion is our salvation. So once we've attained or, or, or gotten salvation, then we work toward that which we have already obtained. This is not, this is not working for your salvation as if it were something that you could accomplish. It is not that. The Bible does not teach that you work for your salvation. Rather, different than all of the other religions in the world, you work out your salvation. Something that you've already received, you put it into everyday life where it's 
where it's part of all the things that you do, not just your Sunday, not just your Wednesday, but everything you do is part of your identity that comes from your salvation. And it's not, you're not obeying so that you can get it. You're obeying because you have already gotten it. This is a work uh, out, not a work for. Now that's a really critical distinction that even seasoned believers, I think there's, we have some professional Christians. If you're over 10 years in the game, you're a professional Christian. That we need to remind ourselves, even, uh, even today, that it's not, it's not that like if I do good, then God's going to like me more. Because sometimes we fall right back into that same pattern that I have to work for God's favor. I have to work for God's salvation. No, he gives you salvation, and then once you receive that, then we obey. Then we work out our salvation. And I think I have to remind myself that because I, I often shift back into a works-based mentality where, like, if I do good, God will bless me, or if I do this, God will... And it sort of falls back into that, so I remind myself. I was thinking about this, and when I was a freshman in high school, I was a really tiny person. So uh, in freshman high school, I, uh, I wanted to do something at school. I wanted to be a little bit active, and uh, I tried out for the school play. But really, I tried out the school play because I couldn't try out for the basketball team because I was too small. And I was, the football team was ridiculous. I was, a, I was a little bit under five feet when I started high school, and I was maybe about 72 pounds, somewhere around there. So it was like a little Isaiah going to high school. And then, uh, sorry about but the priest probably taller than I was right, right then. And uh, so I couldn't do that, and I got cut from the badminton team. And so it was like, all right, I'm going to try out for the play because that's totally what I want to do. Right? Well, it's, it's only what I want to do because like, nothing else worked out, right? But this is absolutely what I wanted to do. So I tried out for this part, and I got the part. It was really cool because it was the first time I ever tried out for it, and the first thing I ever got, you know, like everything else I'd got rejected, rejected, rejected. And then I was like, ooh, I made this play, and I was really excited. Uh, so I got this part. And uh, uh, after that, I worked day, day by day. Uh, day after day, I worked uh, to get this character right. Sometimes the director would yell at me often because I was like, uh, not only was I small, but I think my brain was small. So I was like always confused. I was one of those kids like, what? Where am I? Where are we going? And so I'd get yelled at like, you're standing in the wrong place. Go over there. Oh, yeah, I, I don't remember. But, you know, so I'd get yelled at by the director. And then sometimes other cast members would help me uh, figure out where to stand, where to go, uh, like what the script was about because, you know, I wasn't super smart at the time. So now I'm way smart. Uh, I, I do expository preaching now, so come on. <laughs> and, uh, so they would help me understand what the script was about and that sort of stuff. So day by day, as, as I was like figuring out this character and I was figuring out how to do this acting thing, uh, I got a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better. And, uh, and uh, eventually, uh, I did pretty well. And it turned out uh, that's something I liked, and I stayed in uh, through the rest of high school. But I really worked hard to that which I was already cast for. So I already got the part. When I tried out for I got the part, and the rest of the time, I was just trying to become more like that part. I was trying to live up to the thing that I was cast for. I was trying to get better at the thing that I already had received. So at the end of it, no matter what happened, I was still going to be on stage. I was still going to be this character. I was still going to be in the play. And whether I was going to be good at it or not, whether I was going to fulfill the role of this, whether it was going to be a believable role, whether it was going to be part of like uh, moving the audience, that was the workout part. And I think it's sort of similar to what what God is saying to you. You're already a son, Sam. You're already a daughter. That, that's sealed. That's it. You're going you're gonna to be there. So if you're going to be there, why don't you work it out so that you can become this amazing person that God has already planned for you to be when you're perfected? 
So our whole life is working towards that perfection. Do we get perfect on this planet? No, but you better be more perfect today than yesterday. You should have worked it out just a little bit more, just a little bit more. That's why I like to say, I hope this is the best spiritual year of your life. If not, then something's wrong. If I was like getting better and better at being a, a little actor in this play, and then all of a sudden one day I just started to get worse and worse, then that's problematic. Because we should get better and better and better. We should be nearer to God, closer to God, more in touch with God, better at praying, better at reading our Bible, better at sharing the gospel. Not so that I could get the part, but so that I can work out the part, so I can live up to the thing which I've already been called to. Now that working out, the Bible said, should be done in fear and trembling. Now there's two ways to look at this, which is a, and they're kind of opposite, which is interesting. Uh, when you work out your your salvation, the first way is sort of a, a negative sense of it, the fear and trembling. Fear here meaning that, that you're scared because of your own inadequacies. That The fear can mean that. That you're scared because you, you can't uh, possibly fulfill the thing that you've received. And the, and the uh, trembling then would be describing the anxiety that one feels uh, in that distrust of their own ability to accomplish that which they've been called to. Um, yet you give it your whole all anyway. So that fear and trembling could be like, God, I got this. I, I don't know how to do it. I, I know I'm inadequate, but I know you're going to provide. We're going to see that in the next passage. But some uh, theologians think that this is actually a positive sense of fear and trembling. So fear and the idea of fear the Lord, have respect for the Lord. And the trembling is a trembling of joy, where you're like, oh, man, God, I can't believe this. I'm so excited and so happy. And so <laughs> maybe it depends on how, like, uh, how uh, still moody you are. If you're still like a little moody, a little dark, then you're like, yeah, I'm going to work it out with fear and trembling. And then if you're like more happy and joyful, then you're like, yeah, it's like respect and, and excitement versus the other two. Um, Context-wise, I'm not really sure what, what, which way it goes, but either way, it's, it's our inadequacy that doesn't allow us to uh, fulfill this, which is really cool because there's this statement that comes right after it telling us that you're not doing it by yourself. That, that you are not working out your salvation just by you. So check out this uh, statement about the dynamic relationship that we have with God. Would you pull that verse back up right at the end there? Um, For it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So he says, you've got to do something. But then the next sentence he says, well, it's God who's going to do something. What a cool statement about that dynamic that, that it's not just me and it's not just God. It's sort of this relationship between God and me. And it's really cool because Paul exhorts the church as if he were an Arminianist in addressing men and free will. But then he prays as if he were a Calvinist in addressing God and trusting God's sovereignty for all things. And he doesn't seem to feel an inconsistency here as Paul is writing this. And so he makes no attempt to reconcile divine sovereignty and human free will. Rather, he just proclaims them both. He says, you've got to work, and God's going to work. And he doesn't bother to say how that works together. But he says they're both active and involved. God's work in you, what is it to do? It's to change your will, your desire, your heart. So your heart, your will, desire match his. And then your actions also will point to him towards his good purposes. So here he continues. He says, do everything, in the next verse, do everything without grumbling or complaining, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in a warped and crooked generation. Then you'll shine among them 
like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. So flee from grumbling and arguing, and then there's a little quote part there. And the reason that's sort of quoted is because it would bring to mind the, list, the, the listeners who are hearing this letter or reading this letter, uh, Deuteronomy 32, where, where the Israelites were grumbling and complaining, and they had turned away from God. And he, he said, oh, you uh, wicked and warped, crooked generation. So this is a quote from Deuteronomy where God was disappointed with the Israelites because they, though they saw miracle after miracle, they were turning away from God. They were grumbling against God. And Paul reminds modern Christians of the time, and then I think it jumps 2,000 years again to us. He, he reminds both his modern Christians and then us as modern Christians not to be like the rebellious Israelites who were constantly complaining and disputing with God. He says, don't do that. The goal, just like history past, the goal with the Israelites was the same as the goal it was supposed to be uh, for us as the church and it's supposed to be for us even today in Jesus' church back then. That the goal is to shine like stars in the dark. To be like pure water in the midst of polluted water. To be a straight path in the middle of all sorts of crooked paths all around. See, that was, that was ultimately the goal. To shine out the salvation that we already possess so that others can come to Jesus. And that they can fulfill, uh, so that we can fulfill our place as lights to the world. See, lights are used for many things in life. Lights are almost always really positive. Lights make things evident, as if you were trying to read a book, you need some light. Light help people guide. If you're ever in a dark place, uh, you need a flashlight to guide your way. Lights sometimes act as a warning, as in a lighthouse, to keep a ship from hitting the shore. Light brings cheer. I don't know if you've ever been worried or... I don't know if you've ever heard noises in your house, and I don't know why I'm the one in charge of going to find out what the noises are, but I'm scared too, okay? Just because I have a machete doesn't mean like I don't know how to use it. So I'm in charge, but what do I do as soon as I get, I turn on the lights, and oh, wow, whew, way safer now. Not if there's a bad guy, right? <laughs> Same difference. He can't see, I can't see, I can see, he can see, either way. Like, it's not going to help me, but for some reason, oh, man. Lights just really, really bring cheer to me when I'm scared. Um, they make us feel more safe. Like it, if you want to be all gloomy, you turn the lights down when you're in that mood, right? No one does bright lights and you're like, I'm sad. <laughs> like it's super bright lights. And so the lights cheer us up. And so I think that all those things uh, are what, what God has in mind. He says, I want, you to, I want you to point the way. I want you to shine bright. I want you to bring cheer. I want you to show guidance. I want you to be available to to protect and say, hey, go, don't go that way. That's all the kind of stuff we're talking about. The Bible says there's, this, again, an assumption that you are lights of the world. You don't have to become lights. The moment you say yes to Jesus, you are the light of the world. The only question is how bright is your light going to shine? So you are a light, but are you going to be one of those, like, a little bit of light, or are you going to be a bright, shining light? Uh, and we need to shine brighter and brighter and brighter. That's the whole point of work out your salvation. I was trying to think of some examples of this, and, and uh, I love uh, Brian Chan, one of our brothers, you guys, uh, most of you are probably familiar with who Brian Chan is, but in the last two years, I've been bragging uh, in the last two months about his last two years. Because when we first came, uh, Brian was, uh, for me, a little rougher around the edges, <laughs> uh, and he joked a lot, and I'm not sure uh, he was uh, overly serious for the things of God just a few years ago. 
But in the last couple of years, I have seen such tremendous growth in him so that he becomes shining brighter and brighter and brighter. Last week, he was upstairs giving a message to the kids so that Pastor Peter could come down and enjoy service because he doesn't get to come up. That was the only reason. And I had him film himself. Can you imagine how tough that is? And then I'm going to critique him, right? And so, like, that's pretty tough. Like, but he wants to shine brighter and brighter and brighter. He's trying to get better and better. And it's so cool that I've got to, in the last couple of years, watch him uh, just become from a little bit sillier, a little more casual, to be taking his relationship with God seriously. He took uh, two, uh, a week off of work. His, he took his vacation time to be at VBS to volunteer. Now, that's incredible. Like, I take my week off of work, and I get away from everybody, right? I do not go towards kids. We go away from kids if I get vacation time. And so it's just this incredible example, Brian, is uh, of what this would look like, how you shine brighter and brighter and brighter. Another couple that just kind of joined us in the last few months, Rita and Tommy, I was thinking about them as well, how they shine brighter and brighter, how, how God is using them. Like, they have three kids that are under the age of seven, and they've been bringing out their neighbor kids to church as well. They brought them every week to, to the VBS. They brought, so the neighbor has three other kids. So three kids, three kids, some people. They filled up every spot in their eight-person minivan, right? It was full, full. And they've been do, like, when you have kids under seven, you're just trying to stay alive. Like, I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to do ministry if I have kids under seven. I'm not trying to volunteer. I'm not trying to be, I, I'm just trying to wake up tomorrow and have living children. And they're like, oh, and we should also outreach to our neighbor. And we should also bring them, too. Like, so powerful. Lights shining out. There's this beautiful debate about the end of this passage right here uh, regarding the last sentence, whether it's to hold firmly to the word of God or to hold out the word of God. And the, the word in Greek can mean both, which is really cool. It can mean hold on tight or hold out so others could see. And I think that Paul is such a good writer that he does it on purpose both. He uses a word that can, can and should mean both. Yes, we hold tightly to the word of God, but we hold it tightly so that others could see it. We hold it tightly out so it's visible. I hold firmly to the word of life as I simultaneously hold it out for others to see. I'm not letting it go, and I'm not letting it be hidden. Rather, I'm going to let it shine out. Because it's life. And it brings life to a dying world. And so I got to have it, but I got to share it. And that's exactly what he's saying in this passage. He continues on. He says, and then I'm going to be able to boast on the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor in vain. He says, but even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your guys' faith, like I'm glad and I rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and you should rejoice with me. See, Paul's looking forward to the day of Christ to discover if the work that he did was fruitful, like something that he could only learn if, or he could only achieve if, the Philippians continued to walk with the Lord. You see, what was Paul's work? Paul's work was to pour his life into their life. You see, he says, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on your sacrifice, on your ministry, on your love. So his job as a pastor was to pour into them so that they would be the living sacrifice for other people to come to Jesus. And he says, I'm looking forward to the day of Jesus where I get to see if I was successful or not. And he's only successful if the Philippians do their job. He's not successful if they don't. If he's a pastor and none of the people that he pastors to 
turns to God or follows God or, or shares God with other people, then he was an unsuccessful pastor. He's going to get to heaven and go like, dang it, what did I do wrong? And this is my heart as a pastor. Like, I don't want to be content just myself growing with God. It's not okay that I just have a relationship with God and I'm near him and I love him. That wouldn't be success as a pastor. Now, I think it's critical and it's important that I have those things, but that's not success. I also long to see every one of you walking with the Lord. That each one of you work out your salvation. That each one of you are shining bright like stars. That each one of you are, are, are sharing Jesus with other people. Like That's the goal of my labor. I can only be successful if you are successful in this realm of being obedient, of putting others' interests before your own, of shining like stars. You are, the, you are the success of your pastor. It's poured out as a drink offering. It's, it's, uh, both Jews do this and, and non-Jews do it. It's pretty common practice where people would pour alcohol next to the sacrifice, or for the Jews they would pour it next to it, and the uh, pagans they'd pour it on top of it. Or sometimes they'd use perfume and pour it out. And, uh, we do this now, right? When you're hanging out and there's the dead homies, you pour out some liquor for them, right? Like you and Tupac. Uh, but it's not just that, like old Korean people do it too, right? <laughs> you go to the grave and then you pour a, a drink for the dead person. But Koreans are too cheap, so they always drink that drink too. They don't just leave it for the dead guy. <laughs> they, they, bef- you, there's always the guy, like, hold up, I'll be with you. Okay, we're coming now. Okay, Grandpa didn't really actually need that, that drink, so they, they grab it for him uh, in honor of Grandpa, right? And so uh, this is really common. It's, it's, uh, it was part of sacrifices in the day, and, and that's what Paul's alluding to. He says, just like you pour that out as the sacrifice, I'm being poured out. Why? So that I could build into you, so that you guys can become uh, amazing. Paul's life is sacrifice poured out, resulting in people coming to faith and growing in faith. And then from that, he says, that's this place where I can rejoice. And won't you join me in rejoicing so that you too should be glad and rejoice with me as I've poured out and then you're growing. And he says, man, that's really cool. Let's rejoice together. He writes next, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy. I want to send him to you soon so that I can be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But but you know that Timothy, he's proved himself. Because as a son with his father, he's served me in the work of the gospel. And I hope, therefore, to send him to you as soon as, uh, uh, soon to see how things are going uh, as soon as I see how things are going with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that, that I myself will come soon. So Paul says, like, I can't wait to hear about you because I know I'm going to be cheered. You know, the, you know, some churches he writes to, the Corinth, he wouldn't say that to the church in Corinth. He would, he would be like, uh, I'm going to come there, and he warned them, and I'm really bummed if I'm going to have to bust some heads. <laughs> but he's like, you guys, when I hear about you, I know it's going to be good news because you're such a good church, uh, Philippi. And so he says, I'm cheered by that. And he said, I'm going to send Timothy to you. Now, Timothy is his best example of what we've been talking about. He's the best example of what Paul has been writing about. Timothy is this, the, the tangible example of, in life, who would you look like? He said, I'm going to send you Timothy. You should look like that guy. Timothy is his dearest heart person. And he's sending it to his dearest heart church. So he's taking the, the guy he loves the best on the earth, and he's sending it to the church he loves best on earth, and he says, hey, Follow this guy because he's this really cool example. 
Like here's the big gun, Timothy, right? His son in the faith, a man who showed genuine heart for God, greater concern for the sheep than for himself. He's proven himself as a, as a generous gospel giver. He's being sent. Like what a brag from, from Paul about Timothy, right? He says, there's nobody like him. He's the best. And so uh, lastly, uh, well, not lastly from this passage, but, but I w- when I think about this passage and I think about uh, Paul sending Timothy, I was thinking about in the last year or so this church. So the first year I was here, like I liked you a lot. Nice church. Doing good. Very nice people. But in the last year or so, specifically in the last six months or so, I started to have a brag that sounds more like this. The first year was like, yeah, they're just really nice people. Oh, man, they're really successful. They're really kind. They care about others. But lately, it sounded much more similar to this passage, where like, here's a specific person who's doing specific things that honor God. Here's how they're working out. Here's how they're looking. Here's how, man, we have believers that are amazing. I just said, too, just a little bit earlier, but, but as I think through it, I had a hundred different names that I could think of and say an example of something powerful and amazing. Every name that I have on, on my list that I'm praying through for, for our church person, every person there that's doing something really cool for the Lord. And so more and more I'm able to have this brag, and it's so exciting to have. And, and, and I pray that you would continue to live out your faith like Timothy did, more and more each day, shining brighter and brighter. And he says, I'm not only going to send Timothy to you, but I think it's also necessary that I send back to you this guy named Epaphroditus in our next passage. He's my brother and my co-worker. Uh, he's a fellow soldier. He's also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. So, For he longs to see all of you, uh, and he's distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was sick. Uh, he almost died, but God had mercy on him, and he didn't, uh, and not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him back to you, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and, and that I could have a little bit less anxiety. And so this, this undoubtedly, as we look at it, meant that Epaphroditus, he's the one, so the church of Philippi sent Paul a bunch of money. You can't send it via FedEx, you have to send it via a dude. And so he had their money. And he walked their money over to Paul, and he brought them their missionary offering right to Paul. Now, when he got there, Paul was in prison. And so uh, Roman prisons were notorious for uh, having uh, different diseases, having not being the most sanitary sort of places. Remember, you can only poop in your own cell, and they don't have plumbing. So you can imagine some diseases may come up. And so they're like, who's going to go see Paul? <laughs> Nobody volunteers. Epaphroditus is like, OK, I'll go. And he goes there, and he gets sick right when he gets there. Uh, we don't know why, but you can maybe guess why, because it's this fetid prison sort of thing. And so he brings Paul the missionary money, and then he gets sick there. Uh, and then uh, after he gets sick, Paul's like, hey, I'm going to send him back to you, um, because I know you got worried because your own guy got sick when he came to help me. Paul gives like three really important titles to Epaphroditus, re- re- really cool. He calls him brother, which speaks of like this uh, intimate relationship, uh, a closeness in the faith faith that he has with him. He calls him uh, a fellow worker, speaks of like getting the job done, and he calls him a soldier, one uh, who's willing to go to battle for the faith. And so Paul says, hey, I'm sending this guy Epaphroditus back to you. And he, he may be uh, pumping him up a little bit, because can you imagine you sent someone to support a missionary, and they get sick immediately, and the missionary sends them back? You may be tempted to be like, what the heck? You, know, you suck, Epaphroditus. But Paul makes sure to tell them, no, no, he's, he's awesome. He actually almost risked his life, and he almost died for it. 
Um, and so he's hoping to decrease their stress and his own stress by sending him back uh, so the guy doesn't die on his, on his watch. Mm. Once again, he said, I could use him in the ministry, but I'm going to send him back to you because I think it would be better. So Paul, not looking out for his own interest, but he's caring about what happens and how the Philippians uh, feel. And so he sends him back because he loves the church. In our last portion today, he says, uh, when, you, when you see Epaphroditus, uh, welcome him in the Lord with great joy. And honor people that are like him. Uh, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help that you yourselves couldn't give. He risked his life to come here. And so special honor to volunteers who put it all on the line for the gospel. To bless other people. He says there should be special honor for those folks. Even at the cost to themselves, maybe it was a cost physically or financially, whatever it is, looking out for the interests of others. He said that kind of person should be honored. Now there's this really cool thing that I, that I discovered, and I've been a Christian for a long time, almost 30 years, and a pastor for about 25 years. And I came upon this part that I had never heard in my entire Christian life right here about this passage when I was uh, reading uh, this passage. The part where it says he risked his life to make up for Christ. Now, he risked his life is this ancient, uh, th this Greek phrase called uh, parabeluomai. I know, really important, right? So parabeluomai, and the uh, reason I say it, not just to be arrogant, but hold on to that idea of, just, not that I'm arrogant, hold on to the idea of what the word is, parabeluomai. So, so he says this word parabeluomai, and what it translates says is he risked something. He ris risked his life. But really what it means is this is a, it's a phrase of gambling of the time. It, the gambling phrase means to like take all your money and risk it on one throw of the dice. He's a risk everything on one throw of the dice. That's what the, the risk, it's a, a phrase from the ancient world that's involved with gambling. And so Paul writes, for the sake of Jesus Christ, Epaphroditus was willing to roll the dice, to risk everything. Now, I'd never heard that. But then when I was reading it, there's this other group of Christians who a few, uh, a few years later, they heard about this kind of word, they knew what that word meant, and they're like, hey, we're going to create a group. In the early church, there was this group, an association of men and women, who called themselves the gamblers because of this passage. That They, they said, we're going to be willing to risk everything for the sake of Christ. And they took the same, that same ancient word, Greek, parabolumai, and they called themselves the parabolani, the, the, the gamblers for Christ, which is super dope because what did they gamble? They were people who, uh, in, in Carthage, there was a... Uh, a sickness that broke out in 252 A.D. And these people, the gamblers for Christ, uh, while other people, there was nowhere to put the bodies, so they would throw these sick bodies, dead bodies, out into the street. And no one would care for the sick because it was a communicable disease. And so the Parabolani, they said, hey, let's gamble it all for Christ. Let's risk it all. And so they go into the city and they grab dead bodies and they bury them. And they go into these people who are absolutely contagiously sick and they care for them. Even when their own family was like, we are fleeing this city because people are dropping like flies. And so the gamblers for Christ said, like, nope, we're going to step in and we're going to risk it all. So cool. Like this gambling spirit, that should be in every Christian. Like an almost reckless courage, which makes us ready to gamble our lives to serve Christ and other people. How are we doing with that? What have we risked for him? 
that being a Christian isn't the safe bet. But I think it seems like it is here in America a lot. But it ought not to be. Being a Christian is a wild, powerful, risky business. And we ought to embrace that. I know, I know we often live in fear. We get worried about stuff. And I know as a church, we plan and prepare, prepare better than almost anyone on this planet Earth. I promise you. <laughs> we are planned and prepared folks. But I think we need to add a little risk. I think every one of us says, needs to say to ourselves, we, I've also got to be willing to risk it all for Jesus. Yes, I can plan and prepare. Yes, I can do this. But Jesus, bottom line, I'm willing to take a throw of the dice and risk it all for you. Because who better than us? We've got something to risk. We've got incredible gifts available. I pray that we can adopt that spirit to become gamblers for Christ, to take a little bit of risk, whatever that means in your life. Would you pray with me, and then we're going to worship. Father, and I... I love comfort. I love planning. I love knowing what's going to happen next. I love my own security. But God, as I hear your word, I see examples in the word and in real life. I want to follow you better. I want to shine brighter. I want to risk everything for you. And God, I pray that for our folks today, that they would be hearing your word, they would be seeing the examples, historically, biblically, contemporarily, and that you'd move us to say, we want to just risk it all. I want to invite you to pray right now. I just want you to pray one thing. Pray that, God, I want to risk it all. Not a half measure, not a quarter measure, but I just want to, I want to throw it all in with you. And so you, I just invite you to join me in praying that prayer. God, I want to risk it all. I don't want to play it safe anymore. I want to be exactly who you want me to be, where you want me to be. I challenge you, dare you, beg you, implore you. Open my hands that you could pray that prayer. We're going to pray just between you and God. Have a little bit of moment and then we're going to worship.